Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you today, so let's jump right on in. Now, my interview today is with one of the designers and change makers that has most influenced my own approach to professional projects and regenerative landscape development. Darren Doherty is the founder of Regrarians LTD, based in Bendigo, Australia, and he has extensive experience in project design, development, management, and training. He's worked in six continents and nearly 50 countries in mostly broadacre agricultural applications. The Regrarian's purpose that he promotes through his business is to provide the potential for people to be informed about the regenerative economy, whether it involves work in agriculture, land management, corporate life, domestic services, manufacturing, or other activities that are within the reasonable domain of humans. In this episode, Darren talks extensively about the innovative platform and ethics that his organization promotes, how he got started as a landscape designer and began teaching with Bill Mollison, the co-founder of Permaculture and he gives essential advice on how to build soils that are a little counterintuitive to how many people have learned with mulch and compost. This is another really in-depth interview, and I'd advise having a notebook on hand as Darren goes into detail about a lot of the science behind soil building and carbon sequestering in a regenerative landscape. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started, I recorded this episode on Mother's Day here in a little town of Sununa in Guatemala where I'm at at the moment. The town held a big concert in the square right next to where I live, and the music started right as Darren and I got started. I did my best to edit all of the music and the noise, but just bear with me if at some point some of the music gets through and it is just a little bit distracting. Darren and I have a good laugh about the whole thing at the end of the interview, and it all went pretty well considering. Now just before we get started, don't forget to tune in at the end of this episode for some exclusive information on upcoming workshops. And now here's Darren Doherty from Regrarians LTD. Hey, Darren, thank you so much for being with me today. How are you doing down there? Yeah, I'm really well, thanks, Oliver. Really nice to talk to you. Hey, it's totally my pleasure. Well, I've got a ton of questions that I would love to ask you and my listeners would love to hear from as well. So why don't we just jump right on in? Sounds great. All right, so let's start at the beginning. Let's start by talking a little bit about your background and how you got into the work that you do now. Um, my background is probably a bit different to what a lot of people is. Uh, I, uh, it really starts with, um, my father being killed in Vietnam, um, when I'm three three or four months old. And, um, at the time my 20, my 21 year old mother and I were living at my grand at her parents' farm, my grand maternal grandparents. And... You know, that wasn't expected, of course. Um, and as a result, my my grandfather, who was in his early 50s at the time, and my grandmother, who was only 44, um, took, took us on, as it were. Um, and with that, Grandad effectively became, and Nana, um, but particularly Grandad out in the field, became this uh, rural mentor. So uh, I probably would have been... Um, straight into suburbia um, had my father lived um, and so I started really there um, and so we spent the first few years of my life there and then because of that bond with the place and my nana and granddad 
um, when my mother remarried and we did move into town um, with her new husband, my stepfather, my dad, um, we, uh, I'd go out there all the time. Um, I was out there um, every holidays, uh, a lot of weekends as labour um, and willingly because I loved it out there. It was I saw it as being my real home. So, um, and I helped my grandfather right up until they sold the place, um, um, which was about uh, 1998, I think. And um, yeah, so it really started there. Um, after that, I, um, when I was about 18, I left school and um, got involved in hospitality as a lot of people do at that age, especially those who don't go and go to university as I never did. And I got involved in the food and it was really food that started to really jump out at me. And um, I got involved in hospitality initially as a waiter and then I became a chef um, and really got engaged with food and local food, particularly when I was working in Tasmania. I was talking with a very young, um, executive chef in a, a five-star international hotel and um, he was only 28 and he was we had a lot of providors coming in and farmers coming to the back door with the product um, and very innovative products and that and a few of the young chefs that I was working with otherwise you know were really interested in the farming and how the story of the food etc so you know, my farming background brought me back into that and it wasn't that long before I left hospitality probably and um, I got a job at, I wanted to get out anyway because of the, the, the schedule of hospitality is always, you're always working when other people are eating um, and then cleaning up after I know that, I've done plenty the, of that work yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 as a lot of people have. It's just, yeah. it's a, you know, it's a stay in it over the duration. I Hats off to people who do but um, I um, got a job. I moved back home to Benigo and I was working about an hour away and it was a, a really hard job to get to um, and I didn't have accommodation. It was just tough and I, I started going to the local organic shop and organic grocery and um, struck up a friendship as you do with the shopkeepers and um, got in and um, we started talking and they said, oh, we need someone to manage the place. So I took on that job, um, which was great. And um, that put me in really good contact with a whole host of um, growers. And here in central Victoria, it's one of the epicenters of organic agriculture on the planet. And, um, and so I was, this is nearly 30 years ago, I was um, in contact with, um, a whole host of uh, really innovative um, uh, growers and producers and processors. And um, it sort of started my consulting career, if you like, started by me answering their questions of, because they'd say, um, what's this guy over here doing? Um, I heard, you know, Oliver, what is what's he doing about growing his carrots or growing his potatoes or looking after his cattle? And I'd answer, I'd say, oh, Oliver's doing this. And so it's sort of, my job really hasn't changed that much since then because so much of what I do now is saying, all right, well, 
Um, I've got a client who will say, oh, you know, I've got this particular problem. Well, I'll say, well, Oliver over here, he's he's doing this, and Ben over here is doing this, and um, Megan over here is doing this. Maybe you want to talk. So it really did start at the shop counter, and um, and it has been really a form of hospitality the whole way through, as often. So let me see if I understand this correctly. Because of your middleman position communicating with all these different growers and producers, they came to you asking advice based on what you've heard from others, and that's how you got started in consulting? Uh Uh-huh. And how did it turn into a full-time job for you, and when did that transition turn into the Regrarians platform Mm -hmm. that you use now? Um, Yeah, that's a... the transition occurred when I had a few people who were what you might class as homesteaders. We call them blockies or hobby farmers, um, people with small small acreages around Bendigo, the peri-urban type folks um, who were customers of ours at, at the shop. And uh, they'd so I can remember one said, oh, can you, maybe you can come out and help me with my place. Um show me where I should put things or set up my garden and that sort of thing. So it sort of just started there while I was still working at the shop and it just sort of grew from there and we sort of, Lisa and I, uh, my wife, um, who I met at the shop, um, when I, um, we um, started talking about it and um, just one thing led to another. And I, so I did, a, um, I did a business plan training course um, which was for six weeks and that, that gave me the opportunity to do a whole, whole business plan on some of the idea of setting up a, a land planning consultancy. And um, so we did that and I succeeded in that. And that gave us, at the end, a year-long subsidy, which was equivalent to the unemployment benefit of the time. And um, so that was a really great start to our first year of business. Um, and in that year, I did some different trainings. I did a key line training which i'd already been au fait with because uh we'd done a lot of key line work on our farm um and i've seen a lot of farmers in the district who'd used key line um and then i also did a permaculture design course um later in the year um which also you know brought a lot of things together and so off we went and to in order to keep the cash flowing because cash flow is king it, it always is doesn't matter when it when when you are in your business but or where you are in your business life but um certainly when you're starting off um and it seemed to me that uh and i was young i was only 24 or something like that um had a lot more energy than i have now although i still am fairly energetic um that um you know i wanted to really go out and develop the designs that i was coming up with and that was attractive to our clientele to say, all right, well, um, here's someone who can not only design your place but can come out and do the installation. And so that was really good because it meant if I was just a designer, then I only got design income, and that might be, you know, 10 jobs a year, for example, in 1993. Um, whereas if you've got 10 jobs a year and you're doing the install, well, that starts to be a, a business Um that you can that you can get by with, and so it sort of grew from there, and so over time we got up to about 100, 150 designs a year. Um, probably about 30% of those being installed with a whole team, 
and so on. And that took us right up until the um, end of that decade, the 90s um, and into the noughties. And then um, I'd done a few more trainings over time and struck up a friendship with Bill Mollison, the permaculture co-founder or co-originator. And Bill said to me in about 1999, he said, oh, it's about time you started to teach. And so he invited me to come and co-teach a, a PDC, a permaculture design course with him in Tasmania. And he's placed down there. So went down and did a couple of those with him. And that sort of showed to us and the feedback that I got from the various crowds that we had there that, um, that I had some skill in that area um, as, a, as a trainer. And so we did that and then I got a job working overseas um, uh, with Mars Incorporated. So that was just a straight, um, first time I really had one client who I worked with and nobody else. So I worked with them for three years and we moved to Vietnam. Um, hence my sympathy with uh, some of your background noise of living in a rural village. Um, <laughs> I've actually spent a lot of time in Vietnam as well. I know how it can yeah. be over there. It's a beautiful yeah, it's country. Great. It you is said you were there country. for three years? Yeah, yeah, which was really um, important to, uh, I mean, when it was the first overseas job I got um, and it was kind of poignant that my father was lost there and I'd sort of, all, you know, as you as you would imagine, I always had a fascination for the place. And, of course. Um, and uh, so there was a lot, it was a lot of catharsis um, in in working there and uh, embedding ourselves, like our whole family moved there. So, and there were, we had some pretty young kids at that stage. So, the th three young kids. So um, that was that was pretty good because that was both a training and I was training trainers, and I was doing the design and development of, for Mars Incorporated, the big um, food company, private food company. So. Um, so we did that, and that really consolidated this um, uh, the the training arm to our, what we do. And over, and then we say uh, I talked to uh, Alan Yeomans, uh, PA Yeomans' um, son. We've had Yeomans Plow since 1994, so I've I've been mates with him for a long time. And I was talking to him, and he said, oh, "I've got my latest book coming out, and it's about global warming and blah blah blah." And, so we talked, um, and he and he showed me that a 1.6% increase in soil carbon in the top 30 centimetres or foot of topsoil on the world's 5 billion hectares of agricultural land, um, if we were to get that increase in soil carbon by 1.6%, then that would download um, 100 parts per million of CO2 out of the atmosphere. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And he was the first person to come up with that. And he wrote about it in his book, Priority One, How Together We Can Save the World from Global Warming. And Lisa and I had saved up about 50 or 60 grand to build a house on our small farm. And we went, you know what? Um, we couldn't have this information and not talk about it. So we designed a world tour bought five sets of round world tickets and um, did the world's first carbon farming tour um, it was called the soil water and carbon for every farm tour in 2007 and it was based around sort of key line we did mainly key line courses anyway 
we carried on with that. Um, we did that work. We did that. Th- we did a thirteen-month tour from February to April of two thousand and seven eight, and then we followed that up in two thousand and nine. And while we we're doing that, um, I got invited by us all of Australia's uh, holistic management educators. On, I think, with the exception of one or two, uh, they'd all got together. Um, and they'd said, well, our weak link is land planning. So they invited me to come and teach them land planning. And while I was, when I was preparing for that, one of the these holistic management educators also taught Keyline at a community college. And I said to him, so how do you teach Keyline? And he said, I use the Keyline scale of permanence, which I'd always, in my Keyline trainings, always talked about. And, of course, because it's a really big part of Keyline, but... Um, and I went, really? And he goes, I said, so how? And he said, well, I, I start at climate and I go through and I do land land shape and I do water and blah, blah, blah. And I went, you know, blow me down with a feather. You know, it was uh, one of those moments where something had been there in front of you the whole time. Um, because go back to 1998, I think it was, Bill Mollison asked me to write a book and he said, I, I want – you know, you, you guys are really good at process because we were handling lots of clients and I had I had templated everything. I read, I was an early reader of uh, Michael Gerber's The Entrepreneurial Myth or The E-Myth where you try to systematize everything. So I had, all of, I had a lot of those systems, but, um, and I had what I called our works pattern. You know, there was, a, the client came in, you interviewed them, you did your, you did your site analysis, you did your concept plan, your feedback, detail planning, got all your costings and approvals, did the job, and then you had management over time. That was our sort of pattern, and we worked along that basis. But that didn't necessarily work well for training, especially something like Keyline. It wasn't inclusive enough. And so when the Keyline scale of permanence was put before me, I immediately changed over to that. Now, can you explain to me what does the term regrarian mean and the platform and ethics that you promote that goes along with it? Well, regrarians was a word that I came up with. I came up with the term region ag. Um, uh, Well, a friend of mine, um, Abe Collins, came up with the term in a letter, but it was regen and ag separately. And then I was branding, I was playing around and and, um, that sort of re-came to me in a you know, sort of a, um, in some moments with some other people. And um, anyway, we did that. And and then I left that brand um, to those that I was working with. And we needed something that really defined us. And so as you do, I was just on a plane, I think, well, I'm going somewhere, and which is often where I do that sort of thing. And um, I sketched that. I sketched out some words and I put regenerative and agrarian together. And that's how I got it, so regrarian. Um, and so it's a regenerative agrarian, basically. Um, and so that was that was a big moment for us. Um, and then with the platform, we'll use, as I said before, using the the key line scale of permanence in our in that first training with those holistic management educators, that just it just it was a revelation in terms of, well, here's a start and here's a finish. And He's a process, and being a process person, it just was afraid. So 
Um, I started to look at the keyline scale of permanence more closely. Um, by this stage, I was pretty heavily involved with holistic management, and I was thinking, well, the keyline scale of permanence is all about um, well, the, key, the full title of the keyline scale of permanence is it's this keyline scale of permanence of all things agricultural. And really, it only dealt with the physical realms of agriculture, like um, uh, where to put water systems, where to put roads, where to put trees, where to put fences, how to, how to fix your soils, where to put farm buildings. And um, so with that, uh, it, it wasn't holistic. Um, and so I started to think about it a bit more and I went, all right, well, climate. And it sort of came to me, well, the climate of the mind, I started to sort of jam or riff climate. And I thought, well, the climate of the mind, the climate of the mind. And other climate, the way people use the term climate. And and I thought, well, yeah, the climate of the mind is 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 just as fixed as the climate of our atmosphere um, or the, cli- the climate that's climates that we live in and so many other climates and so that that sort of uh came to me then that holistic management and the that and that other elements or the other layers of the key line scale of permanence could be adapted to be more holistic um so that i changed so i changed the emphasis of climate in the scale of permanence from being just about the climate that you're in to the climate of the people that you're working with. Because I'd always found that, you know, the properties and the, the places, the projects were the easy part. I'd always said that, you know, if only the people would get out of the way. <laughs> um, then, uh, I found that too in my own project. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If, um, They're usually the, easy. Those are the, the variables you can't control nearly as much. Yeah, exactly. So it, it seemed as fixed to me and so right at the top of the list of things to deal with. And in holistic management, um, the first thing you create is a, a holistic context. So you get, the, you get the person right and then you deal with the project. Um, and then I looked at Landshape, um, which is number two, and I thought, well, Landshape, only Landshape. Um, so it pretty quickly came that ge- I changed that to Geography. I just kept water as water. Farm trees I changed to forestry because I just I was just trying to be a lot more inclusive sure, in the words. Sure, the range of what you do. Sure. Yeah, yeah, words are very powerful and um, and languages. Um, so I so I did that. Um, went to forestry. Kept buildings. I think it was farm buildings. I went to buildings. Um, went from subdivision to fencing. Soils stayed as soils. But then there was no spot in there for economy or marketing, and there was nothing about energy. Um, so I put in economy after soils because I felt that in my own life um, I'd been able to change my personal, our f- family's economy much quicker than I could my soil, the soils on our farms or our clients' farms. Um, sure, and that and was it's an essential and, part for the development of the people there as well. Correct, correct. And... And then, um, and then I thought, well, where does energy go? Um, and energy, I thought, well, it goes last because, you know, there's nothing as fleeting as a photon of light. And, you know, basically that's what drives this whole planet is the light that comes in from the sun. So, um, so 
that was where we started. I called it the Regen 10 to start with because I hadn't developed the term Regarians. And then once I'd done that, I thought, well, here's a platform. Um, and so I, started, I called it the Regarians platform. And life really hasn't been the same since. Um, I've, yeah, it's, I'd say it's become an obsession, but it's big, you know, we've taught, we've taught uh, hundreds of courses now um, with, the Regrarians platform being at the cent at the centerpiece, it's made our life so much easier, and it's made our designs a lot richer and a lot more targeted, um, and our work a lot more targeted. And I think, from the feedback I've had of a lot of uh, consultants that we've trained, um, they've it's been a big breath of fresh air to bring that into their working life as well. So yeah, we've been pretty pleased. I think that's fantastic, and that's been one of the main things out of the, the work that you've done, both in speeches and videos and other things that I've been able to find, because I haven't yet been able to take your course in person, um, that has been really influential in my own work, which is you know very similar to what you do, perhaps with a little bit more yep. of an emphasis on the building side. But now, yep. so you just uh, gave us the really quick view of those those 10 layers that you build in, the soil layer, forestry layer, building, and so on. Uh, in even those more abstract ones that you added on later. Could you explain how your layer system sort of interacts with one another in order to make a holistic design? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we tend to go through with people. Um, so, what, uh, so are you asking like if I get a, if I've got a client, how do I use it to interact with them and their no, project? Not necessarily with the client, although that's important too, but how all the different layers interact with one another either in yeah. opposition or in synergy in order to help the design along uh, sort of become bigger than the sum of its individual parts. Yeah. Um, the When I started with it, um, it wasn't obvious to me um, because I used it initially as a teaching tool um, to be thorough because I like being thorough. And... Um, it wasn't immediately obvious and then once I start because teaching is a really powerful way of um, sort of thrashing out ideas and getting that immediate feedback and all the rest of it and we've always done design while we're teaching so um, so we've always had an example to uh, example property or something to focus on um, and so we'd applied the scale accordingly and it became fairly obvious fairly quickly that by running through with this platform, um, then you could then, in terms of the interactions that would occur, they were largely um, ones of elimination as much as anything else. Um, so, for example, if you look at climate, like the you create the holistic context, which is that um, that core. Um, um, rules of the game, if you like, or rules of engagement that you create Certainly. for doing any project um, and everything bounces off that. And with that, um, once you've defined what your enterprises are going to be and what you want to do and what you don't want to do, um, then, for example, the forestry layer, uh, when you look at that, you go, okay, well, there's certain things that I might have done um, that I may not do now. Um, as far as tree installations are concerned, or there's buildings that I may or may not have done. Um, if I look at the geography, so I look at, as I think you might have heard before, I look at um, 
climate as being the rules of the game or the rules of engagement. And Definitely. geography is like, and geogra- the geography of the place, like where you are, what the landform is like, etc., is really the board game. Um, so it's it's the template that you've, it's the palette that you've got to work with. I love and that as really, a way of looking at things. It definitely simplifies it and helps to understand sort of how each part interacts with one another. Yeah. And so the game, as it were, that I play with my clients and with my students um, is the interaction between the, the uh, context of the humans and the context of the landscape. Um, and, of course, the climate, um, the biospheric climate, which is the sort of overriding factor that uh, determines what you can and can't do. Um, and so it's really a marriage between those. And so when you look at the what I call the development layers, development management layers of water, forestry, access, buildings, fencing, soils, etc., you know, they're all development layers. Um, and then you've got economy, which is more of a management layer, and you've got en- uh, energy, which is both a management and development layer. Um, you sort of, in that an initial uh, looking at those, at the, at the marriage of the context, you're then sort of going through the list and going, no, I don't need this. Yeah, I do need that sort of thing. And you find yourself then, like if I'm looking at... Um, What's the relationship between soils and water? Um, well, if I'm, if I'm looking at soils, um, I might be trying to manage better drainage in my soils or I might be trying to increase the amount of water that's in my soils. So you do have that interaction. Um, you might look at what's the relationship between um, buildings and fencing. Um, well, some buildings need fences around them some don't. How do that? What type of fencing goes for what type of building? Um, how does fencing relate to access, and so on? So there's there's all of those um, interactions between the layers. Some of which will um, help you to eliminate um, things that you might have otherwise done, um, and some will help you to help. Those interactions will help guide what you will actually ultimately do. I don't know if that completely answers your question. That's fantastic. And now I want to go back and focus a little bit on something that you talked about earlier, and that's the economic layer. Now, I know you Mm -hmm. focus a lot on the business side of helping clients and students to make Mm -hmm. their enterprises profitable. But I found that there persists an idea, especially um, sort of within ecological circles, which Mm -hmm. is that a company that is for profit can only be destructive. And can you give me a short overview on some of the ways that a business can be both profitable and regenerative? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I saw a note by someone recently uh, who said that, uh, you know, our uh, people who are sort of trying to work their way through um, the economic issues and the economic system that we have and their problems with capital. Um, and... I, I very much look at um, capital through the lens of what Ethan Rowland and Gregory, Gregory Landway have developed with their eight forms of capital or regenerative capital, um, in that capital is not just about um, financial capital, it's also about social capital and natural capital and experiential capital and so on. Um, 
And so when you bring that conversation into into the climate discussion as we do, so it's sort of because it's a, you know, when we're having that climate discussion in our platform, we're talking about some fairly heady stuff, if you like, and, um, you know, the sort of the sort of frameworks that we're going to, like the climate is like the operating system and, you know, what what's our operating system about and what are our core ethics, um, what's important to us. Um, and so with that, we then start a conversation around growth models, no growth models, um, um, incentivizing workers or, or labor instead of just paying labor, um, um, having uh, allowing labor to actually get um, equity, um, all of those different ways of doing it, as opposed to just having the classic uh, hierarchical model where you've, uh, which also, you know, for some people works fine, where you've got a you've got a husband and wife or core team of owners um, and then you've got labour and there's quite a separation between that. I find that in the conversations around uh, in this space that um, a lot of the conversation is around the lack of community that seems to be built by um, capitalism. And... That said, um, I've worked in a number of businesses um, of all types, hierarch- you know, classic hierarchical types to work around co-ops and all of that sort of thing. That um, it's really the it's really the leadership um, and the f- and the, those rules of engagement um, that define whether that's a good workplace and whether people are happy um, and whether the the landscape becomes happy as a result. Um, the ecology becomes happy as a result. And um, so I don't think there's really any one method. It's really something that has to be self-determined by the players. Um, and and that's, a, that's, that's something that uh, can only be done with some inclusivity. And that's why I, why I really like the holistic management, holistic context process, because everyone is a decision maker and um, if they have their their contribution to make and they understand where they are in the decision making um, process then um, then happiness is more likely to be achieved and then the business the, 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 the business model is the way that we develop the business model around that well you know that's this that's complex because it has the business just started? What levels of debt has it got? You know, so much. How much equity does it have? You know, all of those sorts of things are really, um, in some cases, tie your hands as far as how um, different you can be. And it also depends on the people involved. How, you know, some people just like turning up to work, um, you know, and they say that we like it. Well, I don't, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to be in business and do all of the stuff that goes with running a business. They just want to turn up. So, um, so you know, you really got to ask the people uh, what they want, um, and that's why I really, I've always been a fan of self determination and and respecting the individual and asking the individual but do that within a holistic whole. Um, if people understand that's the way things generally work, well, then things get along fine. That's a great perspective there. I really agree with it. And I have also found a lot of those things to be true with the clients that I've worked with myself. Um, mm. Because, you know, if you push 
way too hard on, on a regenerative agenda or an environmental agenda without focusing sufficiently on making sure that the business model is viable, yeah. all of your best intentions are either going to be limited or temporary because yeah. you do have to take care of that, like you said, that holistic management part and the variables that come in with every single client or every single enterprise are so unique in each situation um, that I think it was really valuable that you said, you know, you really have to take them on a case by case basis, but there's also many different ways to achieve positive results, both with a profit and in a way that's good for the land and the environment and the people as well. Yeah, I, I, uh, in my um, book, well, the book that we're writing in the climate chapter, the first, the first section of that book um, talks about different, re what I call regenerative design principles. And they're a collection of principles that I've um, found over the years. And, you know, a lot of people say in the permaculture movement, they just follow permaculture design principles, which are fine. Um, both Bill Mollison and um, David Holmgren came up with a, uh, with a list. But, you know, there's lots of other people out there in this whole, in the movement, if you like, um, who've created their own lists. And I started it off actually with my grandparents. My grandfather was a, uh, a bit of a bush intellectual. And um, he, he, I remember he, he said to me once when I was, a, I was only seven or eight, he said, oh, to profit is to steal. And I said, oh, what do, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, he grew up in the 1930s and so well, he was born in 1915 and so he grew up in the depression that was his formulative years and he and he really saw what happened when profit um really did steal um because you could see that through the excesses of what caused the great depression with the financial markets crashing and you saw that again in 2008 with the global financial crisis i mean it was just pure greed that caused uh, greed with some more creative algorithms um, <laughs> that caused sure. the crash, right? It can wear a and, different coat, but it's still the same on the inside. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I sort of thought about that as I grew up because he said a number of things to me, like uh, another one was, you know, uh, humans are just like yeast. They, uh, they, they eat all of the sugar and then they'll die in their own shit. And as a sort of a, as a lesson around ecology, and it's all about, you know, taking, if you take too much from today, then you'll, you'll be gone for tomorrow. And also my work with indigenous people here in Australia, it's a general um, indigenous principle that um, across the nations of Australia that, you know, if you find a bush that's got a whole lot of fruit on it, then you don't strip the whole tree. You always leave some for the animals and you leave some for the other passerby who's coming. You just take what you need and leave it. And that to me is all they're all they're all very linked to what profit should be. That like profit if you look at an apple tree, an apple tree is a great example, or a cherry tree, any of these great or an uh, oak or just about any tree um, is an an awesome example of of it giving the profit of its interaction with the soil um, and with the sky and the minerals that flow through that species and that it's giving off. Why does a tree give off um, 500 pounds of apples? I mean, what's the sense in that? Um, what's, what's the benefit to the tree? Um, and that's, that's that tree's profit. And 
it's up to us to to then you know take that on and go okay well how can we be the apple tree in what we do uh, how can we be that cherry or that acorn and also you know i think it was ethan roland who said um he had a, a company called apple seed permaculture he said something like well how many apples come from one apple seed and it's again you know you've got this this power in life which is exponential and incredible and the ultimate compound interest <laughs> and i really get excited by that and so you know so Profit doesn't have to be the dirty word that my grandfather saw. It It can actually be just like climate and a whole lot of other words that we use, be thought of quite powerfully across a whole range of domains. And um, and that's that's what I try and bring to this. That that um, you know it doesn't have to be just one way. You can you know you can be a profitable non-profit. Um, <laughs> you can um, and you should be because otherwise you'll be. <laughs> You know, bound to your um, benefactors, uh, bound to your uh, to the people, your patrons, um, to your grant cycle. Um, that uh, you you should always be trying to uh, have your system get better, and uh, and uh, and use these great examples that nature's given us. I think that's a very powerful analogy that you've that you've used there, and I wholeheartedly agree. Now, I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned a little while back, and frankly is one of my favorite things about the work that you do, which is you promote an idea of working with a full deck, meaning that you sample from all the best ideas from many different innovators around the world. Obviously, you mentioned permaculture as one of them, but Alan Savory's work with dryland restoration or Paul Stamets with fungi and bioremediation, transition communities effluent cleanup with plants and waterways, and the list goes on and on. Why has it been so important to you to constantly broaden the toolbox that you use for your work and not to be too focused on any one practice? Um, well, I think um, I've been, when you do the personality assessment, I've been classified as an innovator. Um, so I have that personality type that... Um, that I don't know that I don't know that all innovators are the same. Um, some, some innovators, I, I suppose, would be those that are just, you know, if you're an electrical innovator, well, then you you wouldn't necessarily be looking at um, biology for your for your electrical innovation that's still to come. Although some would through biomimicry, for example. Sure. Um, but uh, for me, I've always had a very broad interest. Um, I, I started reading when I was three. Um, um, my parents gave me a, uh, when I think I was about five or six, they bought me the World Book Encyclopedia. Um, and so that was my, that was my first book, um, 20 vol- 26 volumes or whatever it was, 20 um, big, thick volumes. So my, my, my interests have always been really wide and... Um, so it seems only natural when you're working in this trade that um, that you would not be stuck in one methodological box. And um, I think people like P.A. Yeomans, when you when I read him, which I you know I read him and I read um, I didn't come across permaculture straight away. That was um, I think 
while I was still working in hospitality, I was doing a lot of reading um, on ecological agriculture. So I, I read, I think I read uh, Masanobu Fukuoka's One Straw Revolution first. Well, that's a classic, 18. yes. Yeah, it's, it's it gets a lot book. of people started. <laughs> yeah, I was about 18 or 19. Um, and uh, he was quite broad in his influence. Um, you know, he talked about being a microbiologist and he talked about different influences to things and he and he ultimately traveled when you when you read his other books which i did uh, i read yeomans pretty early and uh, p.a yeomans um said you know he he looked at soil he looked at the principles of soil conservation from the army corps of engineers in the u.s and he looked at louis bromfield's work and he looked at a lot of the other um uh, people of the 1940s and 50s who were the pioneers of the organic agriculture movement um and you know uh, and so i looked at you know you sort of look to you to people who influence you i suppose and so well you know how did they get by what what were some of their intellectual stimuli and um and of course then coming along with to bill mollison and you know it was fairly clear especially when i met bill and to an extent david that even they um, their their interests were quite broad, and they were quite you know they were looking at all of these different people and what they were doing. Um, I suppose though, with the exception being that uh, in permaculture, and I won't say this is is always the case, but um, permaculture becomes uh, an appropriation society where everything becomes permaculture, even though it wasn't developed with with you know what I call something as being a permaculture is where. Um, permaculture ethics and design principles principles have been used in the formation of an idea or a concept. Um, whereas, if I go and take um, uh, Paul Stamet's work and I call that permaculture, well, that's that to me is appropriation. Um, or if I take Alan Savory's work and I put that in and I call that permaculture, that to me is appropriation. So it's a bit disingenuous to go down that pathway, and. And it's a movement that's been fairly strong on doing that, as, as I've observed from working within it and looking outside of it. So, um, yeah, just having that, just realising that no single person or no single methodology has all of the answers um, that you really got to look at, um, as Kirk Gadzia, I think, came up with the term, you know, playing with a full deck. Don't discount anything. There's going to be, and it goes through to my attitude with people as well. I mean, I've got mates who are billion, literally billionaires, and I've and I've got mates who earn twenty thousand dollars a year who are cleaners, and they all, everyone has something to contrib con contribute. You know, if you're a good person, you and and you're alive, you're observing things, and you're making and you're making you're making those observations and you're sharing them. So. There's something, someone's got something, Every, everyone's got something to contribute, therefore. Indeed. Which I think that's is what it really comes down to. That's a very important way to look at that. I, I completely agree. Now, up until this point, we've mostly talked about some of the theories and the, the ideas that, that you've either fostered or have adopted yourself. But let me switch to a little, uh, a bit of a different approach and talk about a really important and practical question that's essential to almost any landscape restoration project, and that's soil mm -hmm. building. 
So mm-hmm. I've heard you mention in the past that the fastest way to create soil is with grass. Now this seems counterintuitive to many people who put a lot of effort into mulching and composting. So can you explain how this works and what elements are needed to build soil on a large scale? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that, so if I look at the three examples that you've just given me, um, I, I look at grass because if I just go and put mulch on the ground, um, and I solely do that, um, then I look at, well, what's the mineral cycle and what's the, what's the effect, um, um, of the mineral cycle on that what's the effect of the water cycle on that and what's the effect of the energy cycle on that um so the ecosystem processes as described um, by alan savory in holistic management so when we look at the water cycle um water will come from rain uh or if if it comes by rain it will be its fall will be softened by the application of mulch um, and infiltration will be more likely um, as, uh, as opposed to runoff if rainfall hits a litter layer, which is basically what mulch is, a thick litter layer, and un- somewhat unnaturally thick in a lot of cases. Um, and then you have, well, what's the mineral cycle? Well, part of that, a lot of that mulch is exposed to sunlight and o- the oxygen in the air, so a lot of it's going to oxidise um, and return into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, the rust of carbon. And some of it, which is in contact with the soil, if there's adequate moisture in the soil, will be broken down biologically and the minerals will be cycled into the biology of the soil, Um, some of which will be labile. um, Therefore, some of which, some of the organisms, in fact, a lot of those organisms will be um, aerobic organisms so they'll exhale the carbon that they consume in part as uh, carbon dioxide some of that carbon will go into their bodies and into the creation of their manures and all their byproducts their secretions etc um, which will have varying levels of um, of degradation time therefore re-entry back into the atmosphere uh, in in that form of carbon and other minerals. Let um, me look at the energy energy cycle. Well, the energy cycle, the sunlight's coming down and um, it's burning this stuff up. Um, so it's enhancing the the speed of the uh, of the mineral cycle. So it's it's um, is it sustainable therefore um, to just to to apply mulch? Well, mulch is a, is an inert, relatively inert material. Um, that uh, is is going to be decomposed by something. Um, it has value, um, but if I just go and put mulch down, that's not going to do. It's not going to do everything. It will build a little bit of soil on this where where you get the soil contact, but it won't. It um, a lot of that's going to be extinguished. If I just left a pile of mulch on and I come back in five years time, in a lot of places I'll go back to bare soil. Right. Um, sure. Like if I'm where you are in Guatemala, um, where it's in the tropics, subtropics, tropics. If I put, um, uh, you know, three inches of of uh, straw mulch on the ground, it would probably not be there in six to eight months, depending on the time of year. And I'd come back, and that soil would be bare again, um, 
just because of the, the sunlight being so strong and the number of organisms who would consume it. Then the soil gets bare and then it gets exposed and then, it, then you lose what you've just gained. Um, the other example that you gave was, sorry. Um, compost. Compost. Well, compost is somewhat similar. If I just apply that topically, which is what a lot of people do, um, then unless I have a plant community which is going to drive the energy flow of all of the organisms that are within that plant community to um, get it into the ground, um, then it's the same as mulch. It'll just literally oxidise and ultimately go away. So mulch and compost are supportive elements to soil building, but ultimately soil building happens because of, the, because of photosynthesis and the byproducts of photosynthesis. So you can't you can't do soil you can't do soil building without um, and you can't sustain soil building. You might be able to do it in the short term, but you can't sustain it without plants. And what you need to also look at is all right. Well, if I'm on a landscape, um, let's look at plants. Look at let's look at woody plants and let's look at non-woody plants. Um, most woody plants um, don't have very fibrous root systems and most of them have, um, you know, if you go and clear a landscape of woody plants, um, then the amount of the, so the depth of soil that's been created is generally um, fairly shallow. Um, and that's, that's because in woody plant ecosystems, the primary um, soil biological partners are fungal and fungi are aerobic. Um, and so the carbon that's cycled through woody plant ecologies, um, when they get to a state of homeostasis, they become, um, um, the, the amount of carbon that's cycled is, is basically homeostatic. Um, you have carbon come in and carbon go out and it's, and uh, with a bit being put behind. And you know, if you look at a woody plant ecology, any woody plant, 50% thereabouts is, is carbon. Um, and then the rest that's contributed is um, cycled by um, predominantly aerobic organisms, in particular fungi, because they're the organisms that can cycle the woody matter more easily than bacteria can. So then we look at grasses um, as, an, as a type of non-woody plant. And grasses, of, particularly perennial grasses, have got really, really fibrous root systems like, um, and relatively deep. And their main way of cycling carbon is not cycling it into their bodies, um, but cycling it out as exudates. So you know, woody plants have exudates too. They still function like all plants do, where um, they make polysaccharides as a byproduct of photosynthesis and they exude some of those substances out through as secretions through their roots and, um, and so on. And soil microlife then uses that as a, as a smoothie, <laughs> um, yeah. as a high energy smoothie and off it goes. It's the energy that drives the uh, processes of the micro microlife in the soil. So, it's just that grasses have a lot more of that and they're not putting that carbon that they would into woody tissue. And that's why, you know, when you look at Eric Tohensmeyer's The Carbon Farming Solution, um, which is a great piece as a, as a starting piece, I think, because we've still got a lot to learn here. Um, 
that a lot of his effort is focused on agroforestry and the as as a as a known to be reliable means of storing carbon in woody woody plant tissue like that's no no arguments there what's not really well known and understood is just how much um uh, plant uh, grassy plant or non-woody plant exudation um contributes to soil um car- uh, uh, to to the amount of carbon that's um that is being stored and how that can be a contributor to climate change and it's because when you look at some of the tables that eric's looking at in terms of research there's no research there's been hardly any research at all um by comparison with what there has been with woody plant systems that i think that's largely because woody plant systems are really easy to uh, or relatively easy to measure because you can just use forestry measurement techniques to determine the amount of biomass in a stand and then more or less halve that and that'll tell you how much carbon is sequestered into that stand of woody woody biomass that's that's easy foresters have been doing that forever whereas um how do you measure um, soil carbon that's been put down to one meter and two meters of depth by um, non non woody plant tissue uh, root systems. That's a that's a harder call, and there's just been very little which Eric has acknowledged in some of his tables. Sing, single research projects done on that, so we don't know very much on that. But what I do know through my work um, is that when I've engaged with grasses through um, processes i can't say that i've sequestered more carbon because i haven't measured it i'm not going to stand up here and say that i've done that but what i have noticed is that the internal drainage characteristics of that soil have changed the pedality so the amount of soil aggregation has changed um, so that i've got more peds um, the soil has developed better structure what I can also say is that the soil colour has changed um, and that the root depth of the grasses and other plants that I'm working with um, in those systems has has increased. Now, again, I'm not going to say that the soil carbon levels have changed because I haven't tested it and I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to stand up and say that. But what I have noticed, there are a whole host of other changes which um, have led to... Um, that soil being more productive. And sure, you've noticed some of, other very powerful indicators that would give you cause to believe that things are moving in the correct direction. Correct, and I've seen that repeatedly in a range of different climates on a range of different uh, parent, you know, parent materials, different geologies, soil types across the across the world. Um, and with that, um, I've. I also read a really great book years ago um, called Vegetation and Soils by S.J. Eyre, um, who was a English geography teacher. And he looked at the relationship between plant communities and soils. And I was talking on a um, webinar the other day about this. We did a Rex in Chile a couple of, or last year, and it was on some volcanic alluvium 1000 year old volcanic alluvium there's a big volcanic lake up in the andes and every thousand years its wall breaches and all of the all of the material in that wall comes down and becomes the new layer of alluvium on the plain right so it's you couldn't get a better situation it's like a volcanic sandbox 
of, of basically rock dust. So it's really beautiful stuff. A big but mineral it's, injection it's, into the soils there. But completely homo homogeneous, right? There's no there's no stratification to the profile. Every, there's a sameness to this. Stuff. So you couldn't get a bigger, a, a better large-scale area on which to look at the influence that vegetation communities have on the on soil formation and within about a um, 300 meter area quarter of a mile area there were four different vegetation communities there was a eucalyptus globulus forest or blue gum forest um, there was an oak forest with an understory of blackberry um, there was a Pinus radiata or Monterey pine forest, and there was a perennial grassland. And with our training, we went and had a look at, we dug, we dug the soil of each. Now, remember, a thousand years ago, this was all just, you know, there was nothing there. There was just a, a sandbox, right? And so now these different vegetation communities have been established with their different ways of interacting, interacting with the mineral cycle, with uh, different suites of organisms, um, and at different energy efficiencies. So the eucalyptus forest, we're going to have a look there. The soil is is thick with litter from all of the branches and um, leaves of the eucalyptus trees, um, and you dig down and you've got. Uh, a minor little uh, layer of saprophytic fungi activity and then the soil is bone dry and structureless and compacted. Now, if I go and push one of those trees over, the root systems are strong, but they're, relative, they're small relative to what's above the tree, or what, what's above the ground. You know, most of the biomass in that organism is above, is above ground. It's in the trunk, you know? As, sure, it doesn't have the, the, the balances you would see in other places. No. Um, and the roots are not fibrous. They're very, you know, they're, they're large and there's not very many of them. But the soil is bone dry and there's no soil building. Right? It's all saprophytic fungi just doing the turnover into the atmosphere. Then I go to the pine forest, more or less the same. Very heavy litter of pine needles, bit of saprophytic activity, bit of bacterial activity, as, as you can see. Um, dig down a bit, a little bit more humus, what you might call humus, you know, a bit of, bit more darkening or get an, an A horizon. But then again, you get down to about five, uh, 10, 15 centimetres, bone dry, no soil structure being created, um, yeah, no life. Go to the oak forest with its understory of blackberry. Oaks are a bit wider spacing, they're deciduous. Um, blackberries, which are really uh, woody plant, primary woody plant, primary successional woody plant, a few other plants on the ground story. Dig, um, dig down. Soil is moist. It's humid. Um, obviously, more um, bacterial activity because um, of the uh, of just the just the crumb structure of the soil. And a bit deeper, but then you get down and then there's a very clear stratification. We go from a strong O horizon, which is the organic, organic layer, very strong A horizon, which is that uh, humid um, and uh, living soil, topsoil you might call it, and then it's B horizon and it's just stark. Right. Now we go up to the grassland. 
the grasses are not a ma well managed grass community, so it's overgrazed. So the roots are kept short because they um, because the, the top is kept short, and but the the crumb structure and the depth of that soil, even though the amount of biomass above the ground is you know we're talking about six inches versus a hundred feet. <laughs> Um, the soils in that grassland were about twice as deep. The, that is, the living soil in that grassland was twice as deep. Even though that organism is is well, what's a, what's a hundred uh, six inches versus a hundred feet, half a foot. It's 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 a two hundred times less above ground biomass, um, just in terms of height. And if you look at in terms of quantity, I. I don't even know how to. Uh, uh, that would take a bit more to work out. But you see what I mean. So yeah. that was a really that was a really great and powerful example for our group and for me. After having read Air's book in the influence of root physiology um, and the way that plants um, manage the outcomes of, of photosynthesis to the way that soils. Uh, are visibly formed or not. I'll just put it in that way that they're visibly formed because I know that there's people out there who um, get a bit cranky about um, the lack of science in this, but, uh, you know, I ask them to get out and have a bit of a look themselves. Sure, and there's a lot of other ways of measuring progress and seeing how things are developing without you know, taking a microscope to it and the traditional analytics of the scientific world. It makes it a lot yeah, more approachable is, for people valuable. who have their own land projects to actually contribute to the research that way. Yeah, yeah. And that's not to say that, like, if I'm where you are, uh, like, if you're in the tropics, you know, what's appropriate? And that's what a lot of people are looking at. Like, they'll say, oh, well, I'll, you know, what people would do, as people are, want to do, is they'll, they'll hear from someone like me, a leader in all of this, and they'll say, oh, oh, he says grasses are the best way to go. Or they'll listen to a savory, and yeah, he says grasses are the best way to go. But what they're not actually doing is looking inside the story and saying, okay, well, not looking at, the again, that marriage between contexts, um, that marriage between the climate that you live in, the climate of you and the enterprise that you have and the climate of your geography, right? Yeah. And putting all of those things together. Now, if I'm in where you are in Central America, um, it's tropical, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to go and recommend to everybody that they go and set up a grassland and that's going to be the end game. Um, but you may well use some non-woody plants, green manures and other non-woody species to get your soil shifted from where it is now and it's horribly abused condition over to a condition where it can accept woody biomass and foster the development of woody biomass more, um, more effectively. Um, so we use it as a, as a means to an end, not just as the means. Um, that becomes the end. <laughs> um, you've got to you've got to actually be a lot broader than that, and don't just take things that people take in isolation, um, because that's what people do. Unfortunately, sure. I think that's been the big takeaway of everything we've talked about so far today. Mm. Yeah, now, be thorough. Just be thorough. <laughs> yeah. Now, once people are able to actually build their soils, what are some of the essential things that you recommend to keep it from roading away again? 
and to continue to have it build up on its own, make it a, a regenerative system? Um, well, if I look at the context of, say, uh, in the tropics, for example, and let's say you're trying to develop an agroforestry system, well, then building plant communities and managing those plant communities so that um, that you always contribute back to the soil surface um, and you have as much um, biological decomposition of, of any um, plant byproducts, what I mean by that are leaves and branches, um, that you have as much biological decomposition of that as possible, whether that's through animals or whether that's through um, soil. Like, you know, you might take branches. So you've got a branch of a tree, you feed that to the goats because you want milk and meat from the goats, right? Well, then what do you do with the manure and the urine from the goats? Well, that material now should go back to where it came from. I mean, that's the ideal cycle. Or that you feed those goats in a where you do the feeding of those branches and leaves to those goats, that the goats don't always stay in the same place. They rotate around so that the those minerals that are cycled through the goat um, get cycled across the board. But that you also try and maintain 100% ground cover 100% of the time with either the residues of plants or the plants themselves, um, such that the, the soil is protected. I mean... Organic, uh, organic material on the soil, whether it's living or non-living, uh, non um, is is the skin of the of the of of the soil of the of the main mineral part of the soil. So, if you take that away, then it becomes horribly exposed. And if you're in the tropics, that's even more enhanced because you've got warm corrosive rainfall and erosive rainfall and you've got really really strong sunlight so um so you really want to make sure that that skin is not exposed because if it is uh, you're going to lose things really quickly so having adequate levels of shade um, of the soil surface by managing your plant communities from your non-woodies right up to your woodies is really important and then when you're out in the areas which are more range type country where your trees woody plants are more uh, or uh, of, a, of a less density lesser density and you are looking at management of grasses and whatnot it's basically the same principles um wrote try and promote the the uh, the uh, the biomimicked um rotation of animals through using a planned grazing regime and try and ma maintain a permanent cover of of the soil with lit with the litter of of the plants you're growing and the, and the plants themselves and and that's that's basically what you have to do the rest of it will take care of itself um, which is which is a great thing i mean it, you know, as planets yeah, that's what you want that's what you're trying to work towards so that oh, right. our inputs are no longer ne necessary for the the system oh, yeah. to regenerate and develop itself yeah it just becomes management um and, you know, unfortunately, we've stuffed up so many ecologies by taking apex predators out of the system as, uh, and, you know, destroying so many um, uh, large uh, herds, not herding animals and their predators. We've taken those out of the system. We've fenced. 
we've roaded, you know, we've done all sorts of stuff to this planet. I mean, we're, you know, there's never been a more powerful species than us. Um, and, and so, you know, we've got it. We've, you, you can't just say, well, we'll just leave it alone. Um, we've actually, you know, to an extent you can do that in the humid tropics because, um, it will take care of itself because of the, the provenance of humidity. Because sure, it has a potential to to regenerate much faster because of the resources that are constantly being put in the system. Yeah, exactly. Because of water, it's just humidity. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, as, as Savory puts it, it's, it's a non-brittle landscape. So if you're in a non-brittle, which also happens in the cooler climates as well, then you can just walk away and nature will take care of itself. But if you're in those areas where you're subhumid, um, so-called brittle landscapes, well, um, you will just by by walking away and not not being involved in management, um, then you will get desertification. Um, so, and you know, people say, "Oh, well, you get all these you get all these woody plants appear, and you know, it seems like there's a lot going on." But go and look at the soil surface. Is there any soil actually being formed in those systems? And the answer is generally no. It's not. What are the rates of runoff? There's you know. Look at look at the levels of groundwater that's in those systems where there's there's a takeover by um, often spiny, um, low low uh, high toxicity uh, woody brow uh, woody woody plant systems. There's there's very little soil cover. Um, a lot of these systems are quite fire prone and for, or pyrophytic, so they uh, and on, on it goes. So now I think we do need to interact. Um, and I think it's part of our responsibility following all of the uh, degradation that we've caused. Well, there you have it. So tell me now, what are some resources that you recommend to people who want to learn more about this, either about land-based projects or any other form of regenerative development? Well, I'll speak selfishly. We, um, with the Regrarians Limited Nonprofit, we, uh, we're about to launch a whole range of different uh, online trainings which are, people will be able to hear about in the coming weeks so keep an eye out on that at on our facebook presence at regrarians at the regrarians facebook page um, or on the regrarians.org uh, website um, become a subscriber and you'll find out more about that so we'll be taking people through whole programs online um, uh, just as an aside, uh, when we came back from last year's tour, we, uh, Lisa and myself took on the uh, full-time caring position of Lisa's 94-year-old mother, the grandfather, grandmother of our children. So we live in her house and um, we're her carer. So my touring days as such have uh, been put on hold as, uh, while, we, uh, while we undertake that. That's understandable, that sure. Yeah, which is great. I and mean, when we—it's—it's it's actually refreshing to not be on tour all the time. So, but we still need imagine. to. We still need to get our energy flowing, and so uh, online training is something that we'll be doing to help people with that. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, which is yeah, we're really looking forward to, and and we've worked hard on planning. Um, otherwise, the Regrarians Handbook, which is under development, that's that's a sort of a. It, uh, I would say it's a it's a place where a lot of these concepts are brought together. Um, but then otherwise, um, look at holistic management and the work that uh, the Savory Institute and um, also Holistic Management International. Um, I'd look at Regeneration International. They're a really great organization who um, have a base in Mexico and elsewhere, particularly out of Mexico. And Alex and 
whole team of people there are doing a great job. Um, I'd also look at the permaculture movement more broadly. Um, there's people there who are doing really great work, um, um, particularly people like uh, Eric Olson at the Permaculture Skills Centre. Those guys are uh, stellar operators. Um, there's a few others about who I should mention that I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, no worries. If it comes to you, just uh, let me know. Send me an email or something. All of yeah. these links that you're talking about now, I'll put up yeah. in the show just, notes for everyone to find easily. There's, there's an unprecedented amount of information. I think that's a part of the burden that people have is, you know, how do I pull all of this together? Um, and we we think that the Regrarians platform is a, is a really good clearinghouse for, for that um, in that at least it gives everything a title. Um, so I, I look at the Regrarians, like I use the Regrarians platform to catalogue my books. It's my Dewey system on my library. It's, it's how I... Um, it's how I file all of my files now. Um, so it gives things a place and it also gives things a priority. So I think Mr. Yeomans did us all a great service with the development of the uh, key line scale of permanence of all things agricultural. And I'd highly recommend people have a read of his works and, um, yeah, and listen to podcast. The podcast thing is fantastic. I, you know, I'm, um, I, 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 if I'm not listening to the, to ABC Radio when I'm driving around places. I, I put on podcasts and listen to the likes of yourself, Oliver, and um, a whole host of other people and just take in what's going on and, and give yourself the time. Realise that there probably is enough time and that um, that you owe it to yourselves and your families and, and the ecosystems that you manage to take the right amount of time to to put more emphasis on the management of these systems than the development um, because you can spend an awful amount of energy and, and um, investment on developing things without focusing on, on something that's really important and that's their management. I'm so glad you said that. It's something I really like to try and put focus on as well. Usually the development is the really sexy part and people often <laughs> lose interest or don't have the staying power to keep those systems maintained. But that's really where they make this shift after, you know, usually the first couple of years of development and maintenance that they start to work on their own and really start to turn a corner where the outputs are much, much greater than the inputs. Yeah. And where you shift, where you shift your, your regime of innovation. So you shift from being an innovator in installation to an innovator of the outputs of that, uh, of that installation. Um, so true. Yeah. And we, I came up with a, Thing last year, just in riffing, that we um, that we have to that, that most people are engaged in what we call big M management and not and small D uh, sorry big D development and and small M management. When actually, what we should be doing is have is we should have a big M management approach and a small D development. And uh, I think a lot of people um, would find value in following that. Absolutely. Well, hey, Darren, thank you so much for taking the time today and sharing those resources with us. Uh, I really hope that we can do a follow-up with this sometime. I know I have a ton more questions that I'd love to ask you at some point. Please. And yeah, your work sure. has been a real influence on what I do, and so many of my friends as well were very excited that I had the opportunity to speak to you. Oh, so, again, thank you for your time. Not, no, that's really nice, and um, it's lo lovely to hear those tones of Mother Day, Mother's Day in, the, in your village in Guatemala in the background. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> the fireworks stayed away. Uh, yeah, then. we were fortunate so, with that, right? 
The music stayed ever. at least nice enough that we could continue with the interview. It's not <laughs> that little lucky bang. That. A little it bang. is. It added yeah. added some flavor, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. All right. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for your really great questions. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for making the time. Take care, Darren. All right. All, right. All the best. There you have it. Now, I know that was a marathon talk, but let's jump right into this session's weekly tip. Now, I know this was a point that both Darren and I made earlier in the talk, but it's important enough that I wanted to repeat it and explain a little more in this section. Of course, I'm talking about maintenance. Everyone gets really excited and enthusiastic about the design process and implementation of a new project because that's when you get to do all the dreaming. That's the part when you can envision this grand future for how you're going to create an epic landscape and produce tons of food, and house all sorts of wildlife, all while building tons of soil, and all that really good stuff. Now there's nothing at all wrong with that. I love this part of the project as much as anyone. But here's where I offer a little caution and forethought. During this process, make sure that you plan for maintenance. Plan for maintaining all the systems and features that you put in. The truth is that having an annual garden or raising animals is incredibly rewarding but it requires a lot of consistent input. Now these are the less sexy parts of having a regenerative lifestyle, especially in the first few years when your ecosystem is still young and getting established and hasn't yet reached the point where it can take much care of itself yet. Just remember that this is a lifestyle choice and there are some compromises that come along with that. If you commit to having a mini farm or growing a lot of plants in your house, you're going to need to care for them regularly. Many people find that it's hard to travel or be away from home for more than a day, and sometimes not even that long, if you don't have someone who can come around and take care of your systems for you. Now, this isn't meant to be discouraging at all, just as a way of helping all of you get the most realistic idea of the lifestyle that you're creating, and there are a lot of ways to make this process more manageable and simple to maintain. One of the easiest ways is to schedule regular tasks ahead of time in your calendar. Things like garden harvesting times, crop rotation and planting, even tool maintenance, is much more likely to get done if you take the time to make a schedule at the beginning of the season so that you're not always worried if you've forgotten the tasks that don't happen on a regular or daily basis, but that are important to making your design work. I personally like using Google Calendar because I can set it up so that it sends me alerts in advance, and that way I can prepare for what's coming up ahead of time. So once you get settled into your maintenance routines, these things will become automatic and they'll get easier and easier. Just remember that developing a truly regenerative home and life is a long-term project and it takes all the little unseen steps along the way to achieve those beautiful after pictures that seduce us into getting started in the first place. Now, for those of you who want to make a giant leap forward in your natural building education, I'm now offering natural building workshops that cover everything you need to know to get started on your own house in an intensive one-week experience. You'll get the chance to mix cob, make adobes, work with stones, natural plasters, and even try out bamboo joinery and much more. We'll go over design essentials and project planning, all while working on hands-on projects that benefit the indigenous Mayan population here in Guatemala. This is a really fantastic deal because your lodging and food are all included in the course tuition. Now our June workshop is already full, but we just announced another date. This one goes from August 27th to September 2nd. And as always, there is limited space in these workshops, so sign up soon to guarantee your spot. Go to the website at AbundantEdge.com and click on the Education tab and Courses and Workshops to get all the information you need. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from contracting, design, consulting, and education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback and emails to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email us directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again on next week's episode.